It's amazing the way, isn't it, that the human memory can be triggered from a tiny, small spark, the way that clarity can just burst into life. It can be a really small thing, can't it, that can just spark off our imagination, something like a little moment in time. I guess, um, I guess the reality of this we can often see um, when we've lost someone that we love. Someone that we love has passed away, and, and the way that our memory works, I guess, that it can become a bit hazy. We can forget attributes of this person that was really special to us, and years down the line, a tiny, what might seem an insignificant moment, actually really enlightens us and reminds us of their personality. And it can be really difficult, can't it, if we really love this person. When this moment comes along, it can be quite upsetting. It can be a place. It could be a phrase. It could be a song. It could even be a, a scent. I guess this, this, this sort of is fresh in my mind because this happened to me the other week. I was back at the mill. I worked in a mill for 15 years, and my granddad worked in the mill, and he's passed away a you know, fairly long time ago. And I guess my memory of, of him... And this feels like an odd confession, but it was, was, you know, it was hazy. And I was in the mill, and I caught a glimpse of my old man's hands, the oil in his fingers. And the news came on the radio, and I was biting into a bacon sarnie. And quite bizarrely, these three elements seemed to quite concisely sum up my granddad. And, and all of a sudden, uh, memories that were hazy and that were, that, that were failing came back really viscerally clear, almost quite awkwardly. I could see him very clearly. I could see his character. I could see the wrinkles on his face again. I remembered the spare skin on his elbows, and I remembered the way that he used to be and the things that he used to say in a really visceral, clear way. It was the tiniest little thing, but I guess it kind of epitomized some of my granddad's character. I wonder what the people who lived around in Jesus' day if you ask them what their memories would be of Jesus, what their triggers would be. I guess if you were at the wedding at Cana and you saw Jesus turn water into wine, a, a wedding that was a bit, maybe you know, the, the horse potentially would be embarrassed and there would be, the party was going a bit downhill. And if you were there and you saw Jesus come and bring the party back to life, I guess you would never look at a I don't know if they had glasses in these times. You'd never look at a casket of wine in quite the same way. You, see a, you would hear about Jesus' death and perhaps you'd look at the casket of wine and you'd remember the day that you saw Jesus. I guess if you stood under Jesus' teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, you would never listen to a sermon like mine ever again without thinking of Jesus. This would be your trigger. This would be your memory. I guess if you were in the boat with the disciples as Jesus calmed the storm, some of these disciples would never look at water again in the absence of Jesus without being triggered to think of him. I guess there's a bunch of different ways that we can be reminded of Jesus. And yet, I guess we stand here today in light of the fact that 24 hours before Jesus died, 24 hours before Jesus was crucified, he got his nearest and dearest together and he said to them, I want you to remember me. I want the triggers for your memory to start here. And he took wine, and he took bread. He took a battered old piece of unleavened bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. He took wine, and he poured it out to remind us of his blood, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. He did something really unusual, but something that has stuck. He called us to remember him in his death. 
but if we could pop the text up. We're going to look at this story and I guess just pause over it and hopefully um, be challenged again. We've seen these emblems probably lots. Even if you don't come to church very often, you'll be familiar with bread and wine. If you don't come to church at all, you'll be familiar with the concept of communion. And we're just going to gaze over it again. If we can have from verse 7, I don't know if that's on there through, that's the passage we're going to look at. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. I just, I'm going to pause on that word go. I don't know if you've noticed it there. As I've read through this like a, it's what you do when you prepare for a, a passage. You read it over and over again to the point where you want to get to know it as well as you can. And this word go jumped out at me. It struck me that Jesus gets, it's, it's a word that is, that is very familiar to Jesus' vocabulary. Jesus sends people. I guess our habit, our, our human habit is to get good people, people that we like, people are good at stuff, and keep them round about us. Just a little aside, a little challenge for us as we think about our comfortable Christian lives, that Jesus gets, Jesus' habit is to get good people, almost not cloud them with doctrine, not cloud them with stuff, and just grab the good people and say, go, go out and preach the good news, go into the world, and here very simply, go, I trust you, go and make preparations for the Passover. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Have we got a sense of the picture? Remember, for the last couple of weeks, we've been in the last week of Passover, and we've tried to leave air-conditioned casts and get our heads in air conditioned hot and sweaty Jerusalem in the city of the Passover. Jesus, I guess, is, as I understand it, probably on the Mount of Olives, and he's sending instructions for his disciples to go into the city and make preparations for the Passover. And we know what the Passover is, perhaps. Passover is probably a familiar word. Remember God's people in Egypt, when they were captive, when they were slaves, and God sent his judgment on the whole group, but the people of God were saved because of their faith in Jesus. They took a lamb and they slaughtered it and they, they spread blood around their doorposts and God passed over them in his judgment. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, I want you to go, we're gonna commemorate this. And I guess as the disciples go to this feast, they're thinking they're going to celebrate normal Passover. And what's gonna happen at this last supper is something that will change the face of how people respond to Jesus for the next, well, up until, up until present day for eternity, I guess you could say. And it struck me as I thought about this, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus' head? I'll put this down. That would be easy, wouldn't it? Where is Jesus' head at in this moment? Jesus, the last verse says, is eagerly desiring to eat this Passover feast with his disciples. This is 24 hours before he is put on a cross. And this is where his head's at. His mind is in the, the place of helping others in this, when he's only 24 hours off his own 
end. And, and we can see, can't we, in verse 1 through 7, we see that, that Satan has entered Judas, that, that Jesus is going to spend this, that Jesus is going to spend this next final end of his days with, with Judas pursuing him to death. He's got a bounty on his head. And I guess you can see uh, through, through the narrative of Luke, this, this whole sense in which Jesus is coming to an end. Jesus' physical life is coming to an end and the walls are closing in on him. The people are chasing after him. He will be pursued to death. And because we know the rest of the story, perhaps, we know that in a few hours, Jesus' disciples will fall asleep or desert him and Jesus will find himself on his own making his way up the hill to the cross, shedding blood drops of tears in fear, I guess, as he faces the wrath of God on Calvary. And yet, despite this barrage of circumstances against him, Jesus' mind is fixed on establishing this feast. Jesus' mind is fixed, and he's delighted to be spending the last hours of his day with his disciples. Where would your head be at? If you were 24 hours away from crucifixion, if you were 24 hours away from death, I get incredibly selfish when, when the walls of my life just come in a, a tiny bit. I stubbed my toe the other day, and I was horrific with my kids. I was like, I, I can't cope with you right now. Look, I'm in pain here. I've stubbed my toe. I can't, I can't deal with anything right now. Leave me alone. And that's, that's a tiny thing like a toe stub. It's pathetic, isn't it? But, but in these circumstances, we get quite selfish, don't we? When circumstances close in on us, we get more selfish. We live in a bit of a bucket list mentality. When we think about our end, when we think about our demise, we think about things that we want to cram into our lives that are good for us. This is our mindset. We become probably more selfish as we see our end. And yet in Christ, we have somebody who is facing the end of his life, and yet he doesn't become more selfish. He becomes less selfish. As his end comes, he pours himself out more. He sees other people more in this moment, in the moments of Jesus' life where he has most cause to think of himself. He thinks of others. I just want us to think about this scene. Um, Jesus is making plans. He's conspiring to have this feast, and he tells his disciples, I think it's up there from verse Seven on to, to, to look out for a man with a pitcher of water. And I've always read that. I've read that quite a lot. And I've thought, this is, this is Jesus showing his prophetic side. This is Jesus showing his miraculous side. This is a miraculous thing. Or maybe if it's not a miraculous thing, Jesus is asking people to be faithful. He's saying, I'm going to give you something fairly vague. I want you to be faithful. Then I'll show you what to do. But actually, I mean, those two things, that is, that is how Jesus works. It could be true. But Jesus here, you know, he, he gives them an instruction to look for a man looking for a pitcher of water. It's an incredibly sexist thing to say, but in these times, and I shudder as I say it, this, this was what women did in these, in these times. Women carried the pitchers of water. It's horrific, isn't it? I feel the wrath of women almost looking at me just now, but it, this is the truth of it. So when you're looking for a guy carrying a pitcher of water, it's not that hard that you're going to find him. It's like looking for a, a cast lad at the ballet or a death, or a death metal fan at an Adele gig. You're going to walk in and you're going to go, that's the guy, I've clocked him. So Jesus is not asking them, he's asking them, I guess, to be faithful, but it's not necessarily a miracle. You're going to spot the guy carrying the bucket of water. What Jesus is saying is, I really want that this feast happens. Jesus has been being pursued. This is, this is a bit of a covert operation, and Jesus is not willing to sacrifice meeting up with his disciples at this point. He's determined that it should happen. It's incredible, I think, that we find Jesus in this mindset at this point. 
given what we know about humanity, given what we know about ourselves, how selfish we can be. Jesus is 24 hours from his death, and yet he's hatching a plan to spend one last hour or two last hours with his disciples, and he's delighted when he's able to do that. Philippians 2, 6 encapsulates, I think, Jesus in this way, and it says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then we find him on the cross, I guess at the point when any of us would be the most selfish we could be. And what does he say? These are words that we know. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The closer Jesus seems to come to death, the more he pours himself out for humanity. And I guess, so as I read that, Often, often one of my, the errors I make is that I seek to do works in response to the great things that Jesus has done. Makes me think I have to do better. <laughs> Look at this guy. He's amazing. Look at the selfless way he dies on a cross for me. It calls for more from me. But what would I do that stands next to that? What can I offer Jesus? What is a faithful response to that? And I came to the conclusion, actually, this is why we have worship. This is why we do this, because stood next to Jesus, our actions are going to look a little bit inadequate. So we are, in light of, in light of this amazing love that God has shown, we find ourselves in a position, I think, where we are drawn to worship. As we consider what on earth we could offer Jesus back, we find ourselves in a place where we have to stop and gaze up at the cross and marvel at him and wonder. And I guess in some respects... This is where we are just now. It's also, I think, helpful just to consider the way that people ate in these times. Um, what happens when, you, when you're doing something like this and you're preaching is that, that this passage is in my mind all week long. So Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. And I'm reading through preparations for the Passover. This is how cool a guy I am. Exodus chapter 12 was open and I'm lent up against the kitchen table and I'm reading through it trying to get my head around what it means to think in a Jewish mindset. I'm reading things. It's very detailed instructions. We'll read it in a second about what they're to do. And uh, as this is happening, I hear Jude shout from next door, Ethan, which is my son. And so we're thinking about the disciples preparing for the Passover. Coincidentally, my wife shouts, Ethan, could you prepare the table? Please, she didn't use those words, but I'm trying to draw you to a point. She said, can you set the table? And Ethan, uh, fantastically, I don't know if he'd had too much sugar in, this, in his day, he, he wandered into the kitchen and um, in a very cavalier fashion, thrust his hand into the cutlery drawer without looking at what he was grabbing, pulled back a bunch of knives and forks, wanders over to the table, and, and part of me quite admires this, just flung them nonchalantly across the table and then came back through to me and went, give me a high five as if to say, Look at me, Dad. Look how I've got this sorted out. And, and what struck me in that moment as I'm sat there with Exodus 12 opened up, looking at the detailed specifications of Jewish dietary habits and my own son who prepares in a way that I can't really even begin to describe, is that we eat very differently to the, the way that they do in first century Jewish culture. And I think actually we've got something to learn. And we're going to just stop and, and learn a few lessons along the way for a second about how Jewish people come to the table, what it means to sit down and eat what it means to sit down and eat under God's blessing. I guess our habits have changed. We, we think of food primarily as, not primarily, often as fuel. We eat food so that we can do the next thing, don't we? Often it's, it's not the thing. 
that we're doing. We've not got to, and, and that's the way that, that our food industry is going. We have fast food now because we're too busy to stop and eat. And if, and if we haven't got time, sometimes we haven't got time for fast food. You can get bars that are food on the go. So we can't even stop still and eat anymore. We have to be constantly moving all the time. And you contrast that with the way that a, a, in Jewish culture they approach food. The stuff that they eat, the stuff that they wear when they eat the food, all points to God. We come away from a meal able to rush out to the cinema. And I guess a first century Jew comes away from a meal with a sense of who God is and what God asks of him. There's a couple of stories that, and I guess you can flick through your Bible, and there's lots of stories in the Old Testament where people come together and eat, and we see the significance. There's just one or two I want to put under your nose. In Exodus 24, 9 through 11, it's a, it's a story that much of it you'll be familiar with, perhaps. Um, Moses and Aaron are up on Sinai. God has just given his people the commandments. He's made a covenant with them. And, and I kept, we, we read all through, all through the text that no one can look at God and live. And I guess I had that verse in my mind, and yet it says in verse 9 through 11 of Exodus 24, you can check me up, make sure I've got it right, that they saw God, they ate and drank, and they lived. And what, what were they doing as they ate and drank? What was this meal about in God's presence up on Sinai? Was it just that it's a long way back down, so we should have something to eat. We should, you know, we should fill up on the way back down. It wasn't that. This was a sign of a covenant. This was a deal-signing meal. And, and still very much today, if, if you break bread with a guy in Jerusalem, you are saying, I, you know, we have an accord. We have some things in common. We have some things that we agree about. It's, a, it's almost a, a way of making a binding agreement. You're saying, we have some unity in this. We agree on this. We're going to agree to our part of this, and we take your promises. On this, I think this 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 helpful and it sheds some light on, on the reason why, when Jesus was eating with sinners, when he said to Zacchaeus, "I'm going to come to your house for tea," it got the Jewish leaders in such a stir because what they were seeing was somebody who was claiming to be Messiah, eating and drinking with sinners, and they're saying this can't be God, this isn't how God works, is it? And I guess what they didn't realize was that Jesus was fulfilling his own parable in a sense. He was beginning to show us this new covenant, this new way that God was going to work with people. He was going to be able to sit and eat with everyone. The message was for everyone. Let's just take a second and read through. I guess we haven't got this verse. I apologize for that. I should have gotten that to the tech team. It's Exodus chapter 12. Let's just consider Jewish dietary habits and think about them. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, just listen to this, the speck that's involved with it, preparing a in the Passover and be thankful that you can just go and scramble some eggs and, and eat them really quickly. This month is to be for you the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides of the tops of the door frames of the houses where they are to eat the lambs that they, that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. 
If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak, and I like this bit, I like this bit of specificness. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. When, when, you, when you come to Passover, when you come to eat this meal, you're not just getting a takeaway. This is not just to put you on till the next moment. This, you, you, your first course is bitter herbs. You're not going to choose bitter herbs voluntarily, are you? You're not going to want that. As a, that's, not, that's not a way to get you into the meal. These people eat bitter herbs, and they are reminded of God's absence as they wander through the desert. And as they chew on these bitter herbs, they are, they are being reminded of their past. As they eat the lamb of Passover, they have been reminded of the amazing role God played in saving his people. They're not just eating a meal. They are reliving a part of history. I guess when we come to communion, and I guess I can speak for myself, it's often been my way that there's been times when I've just found myself here. I've just rocked up. I've found myself here, and I've taken communion, and it has just put me on to the next time. I think God, in his Bible, asks us to pause over this moment. He reminds us of the solemnness of a covenantal meal. He reminds us that we're not just coming here to lazily claim all God's promises and then run off and be thankful, that we come to a table of reconciliation. We come with a need to make promises of our own. We come with a mindset that is to accepting God for who he is. We can't just come lazily, grab God's promises and clear off. We come to a table of covenant with our God. And I guess as well, as we see these emblems here, they can often be in our mouths and down our throats before we've thought about what they are actually speaking of. This is a symbolic meal. This is a solemn symbolic meal. This is the body of Christ that has been given for us. This is his blood that he poured out. Finally, Verse 12, uh, verse 17. I guess, and these verses that we're going to read through are really familiar. And as we read through them, there's that temptation, is there, with anything that you know really well, that you just, you just say to yourself, I know this. I don't need to read this over again. This is, this is very familiar ground to me. And I was really thankful to have a guy called John Stott bothering me and, and at my side, I guess, as I listened to some of his sermons to... to, to challenge me on what we think about these verses. What is Jesus saying here? What is he asking us to do? What are the memory triggers he's trying to spark off? After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Which is poured out for you. What is he saying? What are the, what are, what are the attributes that he is pointing to? What does he want us to dwell on? What does he want us to stall over and remember? This is my body given 
This is my blood poured out. He is drawing us to his death. He is asking us year on year, forever and ever, to stop and dwell on his death. It's not what we do, is it, humanly speaking? It's not how we want to be remembered. As I, as I, as I grappled with some of these things, I remembered a, a relative of mine who I was relatively close to, and I wanted to go and see him in the last couple of weeks of his life. And I remember getting a, an answer that really caused me pretty great offense. His answer was, I don't want you to see me like this. In fact, you can't come and see me like this. I want you to remember me how I used to be. I want you to remember me what I was like when I was alive. And I guess initially I was hurt, but I guess it was an act of love on his part. And I don't know this, I've not been through it, but my understanding is that when you share death, when you go through death with somebody, when you observe death, what you do is you share it with that person. Part of you is affected. And I guess my granddad was trying to save me from that moment. He didn't want me to be exposed to that picture. It's a very human thought, isn't it? He wanted me to remember him in his life. What does Jesus do? How does Jesus want to be remembered? How does he want those memories to be triggered? What is the starting point for our recollection of Jesus? Jesus goes out of his way in the last hours of his life and he says, this is how I want you to remember me, by considering, by dwelling on my body broken, my body given for you. He wants us to remember him in his death. And as we've been looking through the Gospel of Luke, the secret's been there in the narrative all the way through from, from the first couple of chapters where Mary's told that she will suffer, that Jesus will eventually die. And all the little hints along the way that Jesus is heading up to Jerusalem, that he's going towards his death. And Luke doesn't spare us any details when we get to the gruesome, bitter end. We're not able just to go, and Jesus died on the cross, and now we're all saved. We are caused to labor and look at the cross. There are a couple of chapters devoted to the suffering of our Savior on that cross, and we can't just flick through it. We're caused to pause over it. We're made to look at it. Why, why is this the case? I can remember as a younger kid trying to do a really holy thing and read the way, right, the way through the Bible, and I kept getting to Leviticus. I don't know if you know the book of Le- Leviticus. Lots of stuff about sacrifice, and I just was like, why is this in the Bible? Why do we have chapters about animal sacrifice? God wants us to know something about what it cost him to send his son. He wants us to dwell on this. He wants us to wrestle with it. He wants us to stop, to come away from our busy lives, not just to have takeaway here, but to gaze at the cross, to stare at it, that we might understand something of the cost of our Savior. A couple of months ago, my wife went to Poland on a, I want to use inverted commas here, I'm trying to avoid it, on a Christian can't help myself, Christian conference thing, and really affected by the Christian conference, but I had the opportunity to go to Auschwitz, and sort of kept ringing me all week to say, I don't really want to do this, I don't want to go, but I feel like I need to go, I need to go and see this, and as she got back from what was a great conference, and she talked to me a a little bit about the conference, but she was really dumbstruck by Auschwitz, and I think what grabbed her 
was the way in which the place causes you to stop because it's so big and it's so dark and it's so as it was. Consider the sacrifice. You can't get away from it. There's a, there's a quote on a statue that stands at, you know, on the, on, at the entrance to it that says, Forever, let this place be a cry of despair and a warning to humanity where the Nazis murdered one and a half million men, women and children, mainly Jews. And I guess you stop and you look at that place and you, you see a couple of things. You see the gravity of the sin of man and you are forced to look at the, at the cost and deal with the sacrifice. 